Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff In recent years, the government has taken some small steps in recognition of the inequities built into the criminal justice system. Then, in July 2020, the California Supreme Court released an extraordinary statement, which I will read to you momentarily, acknowledging and condemning the unequal treatment of peoples within the system and the various forms of bias throughout which that unequal treatment has so long endured. In view of recent events in our communities and throughout the nation, we are at an inflection point in our history. It is all too clear that the legacy of past injustices inflicted on African Americans persists powerfully and tragically to this day. Each of us has a duty to recognize there is much unfinished and essential work that must be done to make equality and inclusion an everyday reality for all. We must, as a society, honestly recognize our unacceptable failings and continue to build on our shared strengths. We must acknowledge that, in addition to overt bigotry, inattention and complacency have allowed tacit toleration of the intolerable. These are burdens particularly borne by African Americans as well as indigenous peoples singled out for disparate treatment in the United States Constitution when it was ratified. We have an opportunity in this moment to overcome division, accept responsibility for our troubled past, and forge a unified future for all who share devotion to this country and its ideals. We state clearly and without equivocation that we condemn racism in all its forms, conscious, unconscious, institutional, structural, historic, and continuing. We say this as persons who believe all members of humanity deserve equal respect and dignity. As citizens committed to building a more perfect union, and as leaders of an institution whose fundamental mission is to ensure equal justice under the law for every single person. In our profession and in our daily lives, we must confront the injustices that have led millions to call for a justice system that works fairly for everyone. Each member of this court, along with the court as a whole, embraces this obligation as members of the legal profession sworn to uphold our fundamental constitutional values, we will not and must not rest until the promise of equal justice under law is for all our people a living truth. This letter I just read to you was signed by all seven justices then sitting on the California Supreme Court. And again, that was in July of 2020. The state legislature in California was not far behind. In September 2022, Governor Newsom signed AB 256, often referred to as the Racial Justice Act, to deal with many of these same inequalities, even permitting criminal defendants to challenge their cases on the basis of implicit or explicit racial bias in the charging, sentencing, or proceedings. 
This legislation was intended to put criminal defendants where they may have been, but for the bias of whatever form it is, has them facing more draconian charges or sentencing than someone not suffering from that same bias. Few would argue the criminal justice system should be something other than colorblind. But is the process of getting there going to break the system? Are criminals getting a free pass? What are the means to find out where fairness and equity left the station? This is a hot topic with passionate arguments from multiple perspectives. And as always, we want you, our most important guest, to be part of this conversation. So give us a call at 415-841-4134. Again, 415-841-4134. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, if you're outside this local area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Bear in mind that just as a physician won't diagnose your family member based on a phone call, our attorney guest can't provide you with precise legal advice as they lack all the facts related to your case. And in this unusual night, might be worth noting that they don't know particulars about what your, you, your family member are charged with, your friend, and how those charges were, might have been treated differently in your local jurisdiction. But we're happy to pass along legal principles to assist you in your decision-making. And while their legal guidance mightn't be the positions of their employers or clients, our attorney guests are here to help. And again, this is a topic that can be approached from multiple perspectives. Tonight, we have a truly outstanding panel of guests, each of whom approaches the issue from his or her unique and highly informed perspective. And as always, You can ask any question on the topic of criminal law. You don't have to jump into exactly where we are in our conversation. Joining us tonight, Cherie Wallace is a Bay Area-based criminal defense attorney with over 15 years experience. Ms. Wallace began her career working for a small immigration firm and the Marin County Public Defender's Office and at at Bay Area Criminal Lawyers PC since 2017. Ms. Wallace has been a member of the Alameda County's Criminal Court-Appointed Attorneys Program and now serves as a member of the San Mateo County Private Defender Program, where she handles various criminal matters for indigent, indigent clients out of San Mateo County, ranging from misdemeanors to lifetop felonies. Also joining us tonight, and with offices in Redwood City, Garrett Rutgers is a criminal defense attorney with extensive experience. He's been with us for close to 30 years on the private defender panel of the San Mateo County Bar, before which Mr. Rutgers was a deputy Los Angeles public defender. And our final most important guest is all of you. And we welcome your questions and brief comments as there is much to discuss. And with that, let me welcome back Garrett Rutgers, Cherie Wallace. Welcome back to your legal rights. Thank you for having us, Jeff. Yes, thank you. Happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about the Racial Justice Act. It's a, it's a fairly new, um, it, it's only been a couple of cases that have hit San Mateo County thus far, and you are the two attorneys who brought them. But it's been working its way through other counties over the past year or so. 
tell us a little bit about our starting point. What brought this to your attention? Um, well, all of the attorneys, any attorney who's well-informed is keeping abreast of any changes in legislation and recent developments in criminal law, and any attorney worth his or her assault will also be in touch with other attorneys. So, you know, this is a topic that's been brewing for uh, at least the last couple of years, especially since the legislation passed. We've all been tracking it. And um, I'm dealing with a particular case that I think is just horribly overcharged, involves a lot of First Amendment issues. And uh, I think the DA is just absolutely off their rocker in charging uh, this particular case that I'm handling. So we filed um, racial justice claims um, stating that the DA overcharges uh, Latin individuals uh, with so-called uh, gang enhancements, gang crimes. It seems like if you're Latin and you get involved in any criminal activity in uh, San Mateo County, the, the likelihood of you being charged in, in addition with having committed that offense on, uh, for the purpose of gangs is, um, let's say, you've got a, a high probability of, of catching that kind of a charge in addition if you come from a certain ethnic background versus other ethnic backgrounds. Let me jump in and throw a couple of things out there. First, we're not suggesting that San Mateo County is the worst in the state or amongst the worst in the state. We chose it as an example, and I brought in guests that practice there. I did try to reach out to a few members of the Santa Clara County DA's office, one of whom was actually involved in one of these motions with you, Sheree. But being Valentine's Day, it was a little tough to find guests tonight. And I appreciate that both of you are putting things on hold for an hour until after you leave here tonight. But that, with that being said, we're not always talking about, well, let me, let me turn the question to you. Um, Sheree, you recently had a case that raised this issue in San Mateo County. Was yours a question of should it have been charged as the charge valid or not? Or was it rather looking for a gradation that put the client in the same position? I mean, I'm really not sure what the goal was. And I wanted to give you a chance to explain it a little bit. So my case was a 192C case. California Penal Code 192C involves vehicular manslaughter. Basically, someone has gotten into a car accident. It's not an intentional killing. They've gotten into a car accident and someone died as a result. That can be charged as either a misdemeanor, which would subject them to up to a year in the county jail, or a felony, which carries significantly harsher penalties. The difference is the felony is supposed to have gross negligence, whereas the misdemeanor is merely ordinary criminal negligence. My case, uh, the issue was I had an African-American client who did not have gross negligence and he was charged with the felony. I grew concerned because, and we often don't know, right? Empirically, it's hard for us to know for a penal code who's being charged with what, right? We only know the clients we represent. So the purpose of the Racial Justice Act is to get us information to see if and when there are significant deviations among race as to certain charges or as to sentences or other aspects of uh, the criminal justice process. So in my case, 
what alerted me to the issue, the Racial Justice Act issue, was I heard about a uh, criminal client who had a misdemeanor vehicular manslaughter case. That person was white. He killed two people driving down the wrong side of the highway for over two miles, speeding approximately 15 to 20 miles over the speed limit. That person, again, was charged with ordinary criminal negligence and received a misdemeanor and was out uh, on a very small bond in a misdemeanor case. My client was accused of veering into the wrong lane for mere seconds because his puppy had fallen and he was trying to get him uh, secured on the other side of the vehicle. He wanted to push him to the other side of the vehicle or retrieve him. Those two cases, in my view, were, were not actually very analogous. I thought that the conduct in the other case that was a misdemeanor for the white defendant was much more egregious. So it put me down a rabbit hole of asking the question, are 192 C's being charged more harshly for African-Americans? And what I discovered is, and this is still true, after hundreds of man hours on the case, I still have not found a single misdemeanor 192 C case in the history of our system in San Mateo County for an African-American. I'm sure there is one, but what I can tell you emphatically and factually is I know that that didn't happen in the calendar years 2015 to present because I have information on every case that was filed between then and now. And my research went as far back as 2007, and I couldn't find any for the years 2007 to present either. And that's where my case began. So one thing that strikes me in talking to the two of you is there seems to be a significant difference in the application of the Racial Justice Act in the sense that it sounds like In your case, Garrett, you're talking about charges that the question posed is whether they should have been brought, and in their case, special allegations, whereas in your case, Cherie, the question is whether it was appropriately charged as a felony as opposed to a misdemeanor, different levels of charging. Absolutely. Well, um, the way I got into this honestly, was uh, the DA, in in my particular case, just completely overcharging and outrageously charging my client. Um, My client sells T-shirts that promote uh, Norteños. And if you're a Latin person uh, and you say that you're a Norteño, literally what that means is that you're from the North. Um, if you're a cop and you hear that someone says that they're a Norteño, then your antenna go up and you think gang member because that's your training and experience. So in my case, I have an individual who sells T-shirts uh, that promote Norteño and Norteño um, iconic or, uh, uh, graphics and things like that. You, he, you can order up whatever you want and he will have it made up for you. And one day, uh, he's pretty active on social media. That's how he was selling these T-shirts. This is a side hustle for this guy. He's a full-time employed butcher with uh, five kids. He's in his early 30s. He's married. Um, so he makes a little extra income for him and his family by selling these T-shirts. And he has a, a pretty um, active social media presence from which T-shirt sales generate. 
So one day um, across his social media feed came um, something created by a completely different person that um, had a photograph of an individual and called out that individual as being a snitch working for the prosecution. Um, And it didn't say anything other than the guy's a snitch. He's a rat. He's a bad guy. You should be aware. And so my guy screenshotted that and he forwarded it uh, to his, to his followers. And for that, for that, I don't know, 30 seconds of conduct and probably less thought, uh, the district attorney saw fit to charge him with witness dissuasion and furtherance of gangs, which carries a life sentence. Life. They also saw fit to charge him with criminal threats, also called terrorist threats, uh, against the same individual. Now, this individual was not a follower of my client's social media, but it came to his attention and he got hold of his handlers and said, hey, what about this? And so the handlers uh, referred it over to the DA's office and the DA's office to saw fit to prosecute him to the full extent of the law, threatening him with life in prison for forwarding essentially a text that he didn't create or, or an Instagram image. And so the DA came to me with this, what they considered to be a very generous offer, which is give up your rights, give up your trial rights and go to prison for two years. Well, I was pretty outraged by that because my client is uh, raising a family and I felt like this had some First Amendment implications. And then in the meantime, uh, I was becoming aware of this movement by the California Supreme Court and possible legislation that was pending and then it got passed. So I, I started taking full advantage of that. And we filed discovery motions uh, consistent with uh, the information we needed because I had a suspicion that Latino uh, defendants in this county are overcharged uh, specifically with gang enhancements. And that's actually in the preamble to Penal Code Section 745. They specifically list uh, one of the most abused statutes in California historically has been the gang statutes. And I felt like that was being abused here. And so I was curious and I asked the district attorney for some data. The district attorney fought me tooth and nail for that data. We've been litigating this case. It's been going on since 2019 um, with many, many motions being brought. And so they fought me all the way. Um, But eventually I did get their data. And it doesn't look very good for the district attorney. Um, I have a statistician that I'm working with. We have raw data. We have quite a bit of data on on the DA's charging practices, and basically, what it comes down to is if you've committed if you've committed a criminal threat in the county, and um, you happen to be Latino, I think the statistics are that you're about 22 times more likely than uh, other racial racial groups to be charged with uh, a gang enhancement. Um, it's something like seven or eight times more if you're engaged in witness dissuasion. Um, we have issues with whether or not my client's even guilty of those crimes or whether he's just simply exercising his uh, First Amendment rights. So there's a question even as to his guilt. But we're seeking to get rid of those gang charges because we think they're entirely prejudicial. Um, we think that the district attorney is taking what is really a weak position, um, claiming that this man is engaging in witness dissuasion, that he's engaging in witness uh, intimidation, that he's threatening people by simply saying that this guy's a snitch and forwarding it. He didn't create the information. He just forwarded it. Um, and I keep pointing out to the district attorney that, you know, there was an incident on January 6th, uh, not too long ago, wherein many, many people were forwarding all kinds of memes regarding hanging the vice president. Now, that would be 
that would qualify as a criminal threat because that's a death threat. And I have not found a single individual uh, within San Mateo County who may have forwarded that kind of information who's being charged with anything. Yet my client, who's Latino, who's simply engaging in T-shirt sales, is being charged this way. And I think it's entirely unfair. And that's why I've, I've uh, brought these motions. You're, you're hearing this about San Mateo County. But San Mateo County is the county we're discussing. And it's a good means to take that one county as an example. But I want to be very clear to our listeners. What you're hearing discussed is a discussion that's going on in every county in California right now. And the way data is analyzed is county by county by county. Now, some are better than others, but we're talking about San Mateo in particular. Right. And I'm in touch with, you know, colleagues up and down the state and, uh, you know, their numbers are similar in terms of the way that varying prosecutors agencies are charging these kinds of things. Also, their experience in terms of how the DA is fighting tooth and nail to prevent the release of this data is pretty consistent up and down the state. I'm frankly very concerned with uh, the way that the prosecution in specifically San Mateo County and also from what I'm hearing from my other colleagues and other jurisdictions are wholly resistant to disclosing what is essentially public information when they when they make charging decisions and when they file charges against individuals, that's public information. And the district attorney collects that data. It's not their data. Um, and they've been resistant to turning that over to us. Uh, we've had to fight them tooth and nail. We have gotten court orders in support. Um, but frankly, I think that their resistance to 745, just their resistance to, to uh, um Turning over that kind of data, I think, is also a violation of the Racial Justice Act in itself, just that act of not cooperating. Because after all, the goal is, as you announced at the opening of your show by the California Supreme Court, is to make equality and inclusion an everyday reality for all and and to basically equalize the tables. Um, And the DAs are... I, I don't know. I just I feel like they look at this as an existential threat to their you know their very existence. Uh, the way that they react to this. So th- that's my feeling on it. You know, it's it's just a personal opinion. It's not supported by statistics. It's just what I'm observing. I can only speak from my own experience uh, litigating the Racial Justice Act uh, motion that I litigated. But I I have to say, and you know, I I don't know that maybe I am a relatively naive person, but I understand what our various roles are. As a criminal defense lawyer, I have to represent my client zealously to the full extent the Constitution provides, regardless of whether my client is innocent or guilty. That's my charge as a defense lawyer. So when I represent my client zealously, regardless of innocence or guilt, I'm doing my job. The district attorney's office has a a privilege in the sense that they only have to pursue the interests of justice. In other words, they're not supposed to try and win if they don't believe a client is guilty. If they cannot prove the charges beyond a reasonable doubt, they are actually supposed to dismiss the case. They're not supposed to pursue that. I don't have that privilege. I have to represent my client zealously, innocent or guilty. But the district attorney's office has the ability to pursue justice and to evaluate that in a way that that is meaningful. And I have to say, 
in my racial justice act uh, proceedings, I was utterly disappointed. I filed my racial justice act motion on the 20th of November uh, of last year. And uh, the district attorneys, the district attorney assigned to the case unabashedly came to court twice in a period of three days, indicating that he was absolutely going to oppose the motion, but that he also hadn't read it. <laughs> that is, uh, I-, I can't think of a worse response to a motion trying to deal with implicit bias in the legal system than to have a district attorney who wants to fight the data we have without even considering it, without even looking at it. Uh, I, I found that to be, um, uh, frankly, repugnant. Uh, I was shocked and disappointed by it. Uh, that's not the response I, I expected. Uh, and then the district attorney's office tried to say that my motion was untimely, that I couldn't bring it before the trial judge. I had to file a motion for timeliness, which I filed on less than 24 hours notice, saying that the statute itself provides for bringing these motions at trial. So not only did they not read it, then they tried to uh, essentially have the judge not even consider it. When that failed uh, and the judge asked them to provide basic data just to let us know how many 192C cases had been filed in the last you know, decade or so, the district attorney's office declined to give that information, not once, not twice, but they actually blew through four different court deadlines before providing only partial information, uh, and there were a plethora of, of excuses as to why. Uh, it, it, it re- and then when it was provided, they essentially mixed all the data together in a way that was incredibly difficult to sort through. It actually took me 12 hours just to put the data in order. It was as if they intentionally made it difficult for me to be able to organize it. I mean, every step of the way, this was a tedious process and I'll tell you, if you asked me the night before I filed the motion what I thought might happen, I actually thought that the district attorney assigned to my case would discuss it with uh, District Attorney Wagstaff, and I thought we might discuss it. I thought we might actually meaningfully discuss the data that I presented, and that never happened. Um, Instead, what I got was resistance every step of the way and uninformed resistance right from the start. And then I essentially uh, got a single witness from the DA's office who testified that implicit bias is a boogeyman. Uh, he said that on the record. Um, and I, I, I basically uh, had that kind of experience from start to finish. And-, and without mentioning names, don't mention individuals' names. But from what I understand, that remark was not from the line DA, that is the DA on your case, but rather that was a somebody at a high level of management in the office who came in and said that on the record. That's correct. That's who uh, the district attorney's office chose to represent them in the hearing. Someone who says that he doesn't even essentially believe in implicit bias. Uh, And that person also testified that he, to some extent is offering guidance to younger DAs in the office uh, who are making charging decisions. Not only do we have someone in a high level of management who doesn't even recognize implicit bias, but someone who has no hope in encouraging younger DAs to do so either, if that's his attitude. So, I mean, it was incredibly frustrating and uh, I, I am incredibly disappointed in the district attorney's office for not at least being thoughtful and uh, for not being forthcoming with information for blowing through deadlines. 
I know that the uh, district attorney's office has publicly commented on the Racial Justice Act and has made representations that they are going to make every attempt to look at these cases and provide data. And I know that, you know, they are a well-funded office. They have twice the funding of the private defender panel. I am sure that uh, the county believes that, that some of that funding is going to being upfront and forthright and thoughtfully looking at and considering these motions. And that certainly was not my experience and I'm not shy about saying so. Yeah. My experience is pretty much the same. I'm dealing with the same district attorney's office and it's just been an absolute schlog uphill battling every step of the way. Um, the DAs I, I've had a line DA look me straight in the eye uh, saying you, you cannot think that our office is racist. Uh, those were the words um, that, that he accused me of, uh, uh, calling them all a bunch of racists. And I, I'm not calling any of them the racists. Um, and, and in fact, in some of their opposing papers, they've said there's nothing nefarious here going on. And as I pointed out, um, over and over, the Racial Justice Act does not require that we prove that there is overt and intentional racism going on. We simply need to show that there is a systemic process going on by which individuals are being disparately treated. And the data supports that. The data is about the most objective measure you can hope to achieve. The Racial Justice Act actually has four different ways that you can bring the most. I'm going to cut you off just because we need to break for station ID, and I will want to pick it up at this spot when we come back. It's quite clear from the preamble, which I read, a letter from the Supreme Court, which I read earlier tonight, that they're talking about multiple types of bias. They're not talking necessarily about somebody who is making charging decisions who is an avowed racist. And right. yet it seems to be the analysis that's coming from most prosecution offices through the, through the state. And before we break, I want to make one thing abundantly clear. We are talking about the experiences of two lawyers in one county. Unfortunately, I couldn't bring them here. I'm happy to give them equal time and have them come in next week if they wish. But we're talking about experiences in one place, which is nothing but typical of the experiences being shared throughout the state. This is what the defense experiences. This is how the prosecution sees it, with rare exceptions statewide. You're listening to Your Legal Rights. We'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on 91.7 KALW and online KALW.org. And now, back to Your Legal Rights with Jeff Hayden. And tonight we're discussing the Racial Justice Act and efforts to address the various forms of bias in the criminal justice system. Again, we are focusing on one Bay Area county. I have attorneys that share this experience from San Mateo County. San Mateo is not by any means being singled out 
as being the worst in the state. It's where they, my guests practice. It is typical what you're hearing of what's happening up and down the state in the various counties. My guests tonight are attorney Garrett Rutgers and Barry-based attorney Sheree Wallace, both of whom have practices that are centered around criminal defense, criminal justice. If you have questions for my guests, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Once again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. You want to talk about the justice system. You want to talk about criminal law. You're not limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation. And where we left off, Garrett, you were saying that the statute, that is the Criminal Justice Act, specifically identifies four different types of bias. Want to pick it up there? Sure. Um, So the statute specifically um, talks about more overt overt forms of bias. Um, That's not what our motions are dealing with, but I do want to detail these uh, so that the listeners know what they are. Uh, The statute lays out that if a judge or an attorney in a case, a law enforcement officer in a case, expert witness or a juror exhibited bias or animus toward the defendant because of the defendant's race, then that might be a cause of action uh, to bring a motion such as this. Okay. That's one of the ways that you can proceed with this. So that would be, you know, you hear back that the jurors were in there using racist language to describe the defendant. Um, That might be a reason to bring a motion like this and try and get maybe a new trial or some kind of remedy. Um, another way that you can go is that during the proceedings, the judge or the attorney in the case, law enforcement officer, expert witness, juror, et cetera, used racially discriminatory language about the defendant's race or ethnicity or national origin or otherwise exhibited some kind of bias. Um, and then there's a carve out that if you're just relaying language that a witness used that was discriminatory, but that's what the, the witness said then obviously that wouldn't launch a racial justice uh, challenge. That's just, uh, you know, reporting what somebody said about something. Um, The way that Sheree and I have been proceeding is, I think, a much more objective and, frankly, scarier uh, um, provision uh, for the district attorneys. And that's the, the defendant was charged or convicted of a more serious offense than defendants of other races, ethnicities, or national origins who have engaged in similar conduct and are similarly situated. So... In my case, I'm challenging the gang enhancements specifically because I just don't see a lot of people that forward Instagram posts that may be um, provocative or potentially threatening. Um, I don't see that people that are uh, forwarding that kind of uh, information, and we read about this all the time uh, nationally, that they're necessarily being charged with those things to begin with, um, or that they, on top of being charged with those things, that they're then on top of being accused of engaging in gang conduct uh, in support of what they're forwarding. And then finally, the uh, last issue has to do more with post-conviction work. 
uh, appellate work, and that's that somehow a longer sentence was imposed on a defendant because of his or her ethnicity. Um, so Sheree and I, the motions are squarely under um, provision number three, which is why we're seeking this kind of data. Uh, lots of other attorneys up and down the state have been seeking district attorney data. There is ACLU data that's uh, publicly available um, that shows some of the charging. So we, we've talked up to this point that we brought discovery motions seeking specifically the district attorney's own data, which the district attorney has been very, very resistive to. But in support of uh, my motion, and I, I'm not sure about Cherie, she can speak to this, uh, we've also brought forward other data. Uh, there is the ACLU data that's available. Um, I issued some subpoenas to uh, the sheriffs. I've got jail data that I used in support just to show, you know, what the booking was along ethnic lines of for varying charges. And and frankly, when I looked at it, it's just it's pretty shocking. Um, I've been practicing now for almost 34 years, starting in uh, Los Angeles and then moving up to San Mateo. And um you know, I think I think what we see and what we all sort of perceive and understand is that there is just a high, high representation of uh, black and brown people that are are constantly coming through the criminal justice system. And there are a host of reasons for that. Um, socioeconomic, uh, you know, drivers, um, systemic poverty uh, over multiple generations, lack of educational opportunities, lack of bank loans and financing into certain neighborhoods. All of those things drive crime. Um, and the interesting part of the Racial Justice Act is kind of where are the parameters, where are the, um, where are the backstops, and how far do we go? Um, and that's really yet to be explored. There are no cases that explore that this yet. You know, um, they talk about systemic and unconscious bias. And I do think that those things come to bear when, you know, police engage in, in stops who they choose to stop, you know, why they're stepping up patrols in certain areas. What's driving that? Um, is it, is it a systemic bias? Is it unconscious? What's going on? And then, you know, when it, when it's dropped on the prosecution's doorstep for possible filing decisions, they're not really looking, I'm talking about prosecutors now, they're not really looking at the numbers of people that are, are being dropped on them for potential charges and sorting out uh, necessarily due to race. Um, they're relying on their officers for this. And so those, those biases of the law enforcement are filtering into the DA's office. And then, you know, charging decisions are made. I don't accuse the DA's office. I want to be clear about this. I'm not accusing anyone in the DA's office of being a racist or sitting down, you know, at their desk and thinking, you know, what black or brown person can I charge today more severely than I might charge somebody else? I don't think that they're consciously doing that at all. And um, that's the point of something being unconscious. Um, many people, I don't think, understand that, that when you're talking about an unconscious bias, it's literally that you are not aware of it. And it really is a task to um, sort of open up your mind and leave yourself open to the possibility that perhaps some of my preconceived notions may not be accurate. And that's that's really a couple examples. Let me break it down just a little bit. I've had cases where some of the same allegations that you were talking about, Garrett, came up where a prosecutor raised it in front of a jury. By saying this proves it because they were mixing Spanish in the dialogue in their conversation. 
in case we were listening. Um, in cases like Cherie's, people without thinking about it, without being racist, without having a discriminatory intent, may be swayed by the type of vehicle that's being driven, by the fact that, that it's older, that it's not being kept up. These are preconceived notions that we all have. Absolutely. I'll give you an example of something that happened uh, fairly recently uh, in a juvenile case. Um, I had a young person who was uh, in the juvenile hall. All reports are that he was doing very well. He was uh, uh, getting ready to be released. I expected him to be released. And then uh, probation released a memo to the judge at the last moment that somebody had found some rap lyrics that he had written that were misogynistic and um, glorified violence. Uh, so claimed the uh, the probation officer. And, you know, I luckily in California, now we have uh, some legislation regarding that too. And I pointed the judge in that direction and I said, no, you should not be considering that. But that's absolutely an example, I think, of unconscious bias. Um, certain forms of music are scary to certain individuals. Uh, other forms of music are, are, boring to certain individuals. Again, that comes back to preconceived notions, how you were raised, where you come from, language that's used within your community, and how you react to those things. And that just all goes back to our preconceived notions and bias. And if you do, if you if you go to any of the seminars that deal with unconscious bias, if you look at the social sciences, you know, they'll tell you that our brains are only able to handle so much information, even though our brains are absorbing all kinds of information all the time. And then our brains, in order to survive, sort that information very quickly into categories. And that helps us survive. That's how we're set up. That's Darwin. That's our DNA. And these are things that we're doing all the time that we're unconscious of. And for the most part, they're beneficial to our existence. We, we probably wouldn't survive as a species without being able to do that. If we see a lion, we know that the lion is probably a dangerous animal and we probably should keep our distance. Um, and we assume that of all lions. Um, and that has helped us to survive. But, you know, a zookeeper who is very familiar with lions and who has raised that lion from birth will probably tell you that this lion is harmless, even though, you know, you or I may go into a situation with uh, somebody, an animal handler, and be very nervous about it. The zookeeper is going to be very comfortable because that zookeeper has day in and day out lived with that lion and, and un overcome those original unconscious biases. So you can watch that if you watch old Johnny Carson you know, footage where they were bringing the animals into the into the show, and you know Johnny would not necessarily be very comfortable with those animals, where whereas the the animal handlers were. So you know that's just one kind of my bad example of of how bias works um, and why we may have biases that we aren't necessarily conscious of. I think these things are just sort of baked in and cooked in. Uh, I think it's kind of a radical notion. I, I tell people that. You know, racism can be learned, but what a lot of people don't want to acknowledge is, is that I do think racism in many ways is built into who we are as human beings. Um, and that, I think, is kind of a radical notion. Um, and again, I don't think a lot of people are ready for that. And Carson well, yeah. wasn't always wrong. I mean, I did watch a marmoset climb up on top of his head and decide <laughs> that was the spot to mark his territory. Uh, there were times when those mechanisms were necessary for survival and defense. I'd like to shift gears a little bit. We do have limited time left. 
And there are two topics I really want to cover before the end of the hour. One of which is just what does a violation look like? Because it doesn't mean you're going to have somebody racist going out and looking for people. You've both done a lot of statistical analysis. Just what does a violation look like? And the second is to the extent that anyone has ever established a violation. And oftentimes the violation are some bad decisions being made by good people or well-meaning people. But if there, if you do establish a violation, what happens? Um, do charges get dismissed? Um, really, what's the result of that? So in, in like my, to move in that direction. Sharid, go ahead, take it, take it over. In my case, I can tell you what violation, what the violation looked like for me. I looked at several things when I was trying to assess racial disparities in my case. One of the things I looked at was charging time, for example. How long does it take to charge this kind of case? Because 192C cases, vehicular manslaughters, again, these are car accidents. They're not intentional killings. Uh, in those cases, typically, there's an initial report, which is just the officer looking that day, responding, right, taking down their observations. But later, usually months later, there's a collision report. There's usually something called a mate report that's generated. So these investigations can take a while. For white defendants, the average charging time on a 192C is 216.26 days. For black defendants, it's seven days. So you can imagine, if you will, the thoughtful consideration that goes into charging a white defendant versus the utter and complete lack of thoughtful consideration that goes into charging a black defendant. When I presented that statistic uh, in court, the district attorney's office responded saying, well, we have to charge more quickly because the African-American clients were in custody. Exactly. What does that mean? That means that when you're not African-American, you're more likely to be out of custody. And in fact, of the 35 defendants that we analyzed, 16 of those defendants were released without paying any bail zero dollars in bail, either released on their own recognizance or they're supervised on their own recognizance or zero bail. And all of them were not black. In fact, none of the black defendants were released without having to pay bond. And the vast majority of people who were released who were released without having to pay anything were white defendants. That's the kind of thing that I look at when I'm assessing a case. And one of the things that I was really happy about was of my African-American defendants, all of whom, of course, were charged with felonies, I had a wonderful variety. I had an African-American defendant who had no record whatsoever, and my client did have a criminal record. I was able to match up cases that were similar or had more egregious facts compared to the woman with no criminal history, and people of other races were getting misdemeanors, whereas she got a felony. And by the way, she not only had no criminal history, she was suffering a mental health episode at the time of her accident. Her case is still pending and she sits in custody. I was able to find a person who was not African-American who had the exact same strike prior, the exact same criminal strike as my client. And that person got a misdemeanor, even though it was represented that the reason my client was charged more harshly was because of his strike prior. So in other words, and my contention is that no matter whether you have no criminal history and you're black or you have criminal history and you're black, you get a felony either way. But if you're a member of another race, you have a shot. 
you have a shot of getting that misdemeanor. Let me ask you this. It's clear that there's a disparate impact. What do you think some objective factors might be that lead prosecutors to such different decisions if they're not using race as a factor? Well, I think that part of it is too, especially when it comes to criminal record, right? You have a certain, for example, the three strikes law overwhelmingly is applied to African-Americans. I think something like 80% of of folks impacted most harshly by the three strikes law are African-American. And my client had a strike prior. So it's one of those things where if you have old laws that are affecting people over periods of time, that's something that's going to seep into any charging decision. Uh, and also, as you mentioned, there's also law enforcement. Law enforcement is the gateway, right? They're drafting the police reports. So if their reports come in a certain way, and if a defendant is characterized a certain way in those reports, that factors into the way things are charged. One of the issues in my case that I found really disturbing as well was the way that criminal history was reported. The district attorney's office provided information attempting to show that they weren't uh, factoring race in. And what they did was they basically gave the charging notes for all the defendants in our universe of cases. What I discovered was when it came to my client, my African-American client, they used a magnifying glass to find any prior criminal history. There was a misdemeanor from 1990 listed in the charging decision for my client. That's something that happened 30 years ago. However, there was a white defendant where that white defendant in their rap sheet had four DUIs, three cases for driving on a suspended license, three red light violations within five years of hitting and killing this person and a hit and run conviction. How many of those were reported? Again, bear in mind, an unrelated misdemeanor that had nothing to do with driving from 1990 was in my client's list. This woman, they left off two of her DUIs They left off her entire driving record. They left off the hit and run. And I think only reported one of the driving on suspended license. What does that mean? It means when you have an African-American defendant, they are fine tooth combing the record. And when you have a white defendant, somehow miraculously, 70% of their record doesn't show up in the charging decision. That's a problem. It's a problem. And it doesn't matter whether it's on purpose or not. It matters that it exists. And my expectation is, if it does exist, that the district attorney's office is going to be eager to assist in remedying that. And again, to be clear, these are cases that were reviewed at different times by different prosecutors in a different era. There may have been factors that triggered them to look at these cases differently from the outset. For purposes of the motion, none of that matters. For purposes of this analysis under the Racial Justice Act, The one factor that really matters is that for whatever reason, people from these different backgrounds are being treated differently in the system. Well, and in my specific case, I was particularly uh, surprised to hear that they had the supervising uh, attorney who testified was actually reviewing the vast majority of these filings. So there actually was some uniformity. And where there's uniformity, it's even more concerning. And again, this is a person who doesn't believe in implicit bias, which means that he can't possibly be thinking about it or critically assessing whether it exists or encouraging others to do so. But but that's, you know, something that really uh, troubled me 
was the fact that there was actually someone overseeing who might have been able to pick up on these disparities who, frankly, is not inclined to look for them because that person either doesn't believe it's important that those disparities exist or is incapable of recognizing those disparities potentially. We have but a couple minutes left, but I wanted to turn it to you, Garrett, and ask you, suppose you establish a violation. What are the repercussions of violations of this new Racial Justice Act? Suppose it's sustained. Do the charges get dropped against the defendant? I mean, what well, the um, the the act is non-specific about remedy, um, and so you know the re- the remedy that you request, of course, is always going to be um, most advantageous to your client. So you know, if you establish a violation as a defense attorney, you're trying to get your client's case completely dismissed. So that's what you're going to request, right? Of course, you know, the prosecution is going to resist that and the, and so is, so are the bench officers, frankly. But when I'm bringing a, a racial justice act, a challenge against, uh, gang enhancements, the all obvious remedy is to strike all the gang enhancements and just let this case go to the jury on the charges that they've alleged without all of this backstory about supposed gang inferences and all of this other really negative information that absolutely impacts jurors in terms of their decision making process. Um, there's a movement in the social sciences. I, I recently attended a, a seminar having to do with um, family law cases and, and uh, you know, CPS removals. And um, there's a movement in a couple of different states where they are specifically removing from the reports of the social workers all ethnic information as regards the family and just leaving what objectively happened um, and they're seeing some pretty surprising results in terms of recommendations for removal of children, because again, African American children uh, historically have been far more subject to removal from households on allegations that the households are harmful to those children's well-being. Uh, and then when the uh, caseworkers and the judges who start making decisions as to whether or not to remove those kids don't have the ethnic information, what do you know? Uh, the decisions start to become much much more. Um, uniform across the board as to removal. Um, I think that um, in many ways, it's impossible to do that in the criminal justice system. You have a right to confront your accuser, for instance, the defendant has a right to be present during trial. So, you know, how can everybody just simply ignore the ethnicity of that individual um, in the courtroom? But I would encourage uh, the removal of all racial and ethnic data uh, from the prosecutor's office when they're making charging decisions. They don't need to know the ethnicity of a particular defendant that they're reviewing. Why should they? Um, Similar for the police. I think when they're, you know, making booking decisions, oftentimes if there's a way to remove uh, ethnicity from that kind of decision-making process, it should be done. But that's beyond what the Racial Justice Act does. But it's an interesting, it was an interesting, uh, outcome for the social workers and the people involved in the CPS system when they took out that kind of a date, that kind of data. In my case, I think the remedy. I gotta, I gotta cut you off because we're essentially out of time, but it's really clear. If you read the preamble from the state Supreme Court, this isn't limited to criminal justice. This is across the justice system, across the board. Dependency. Juvenile dependency, as you just stated, juvenile delinquency, family law, housing, probate, it permeates the whole justice system. 
and we need to cleanse it. We're virtually out of time, and I have less than a minute for each of you if you have any closing remarks. Sheree Wallace, do you want to go first? Sure, sure. Uh, You know, when I seek justice, I always start with the district attorney's office. They're my first stop. I go to them and I discuss the case and I I try to give them uh, my sense of what I think might be wrong and how we can come to a resolution. If they don't offer me justice, then I have to go over their heads and I seek justice from a judge by way of motion or by way of appealing to the judge to um, give me relief. And when I can't seek justice through a judge, then I go to a jury. And in the case of my Racial Justice Act uh, client, I did go to a jury and that jury decided in three hours, a case that took months to get off the ground for trial and took well over a year and a half to prosecute. It took the jury three hours to figure out what everyone should have known all along, that it should have been charged as a misdemeanor. And what does that mean? That means that the good people of San Mateo County want things to be fair. They want things to be charged appropriately. And I hope the district attorney's office recognizes that. Garrett Wicker, do you want to take about 30 seconds? Sure. I think in order to really, really uh, address the mandate that's laid down by the California Supreme Court, people really need to do kind of a lot of soul searching and it's not an easy thing to do. I, I do it constantly uh, myself. Um, I have clients who play right into stereotypes, other clients who disabuse uh, the, uh, my preconceived notions, but I think it's a struggle for all of us. And I think that as long as you recognize that struggle and you really internalize that and start questioning some of the preconceptions that you come to the table with, um, you can start to address these things. My disappointment is that the prosecution, as I'm seeing so far, they are not only willing to uh, make room for this, to let light in, um, they're absolutely opposed. And I think that's dangerous. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. Our guests tonight have been Bay Area criminal defense attorneys, Sheree Wallace and Garrett Rutgers. Please be sure to join us, Your Legal Rights, again next week, Wednesday at 6 o'clock, where we resume our discussion of the troublesome neighbor, some of the tools you may have at your disposal. And as always, we will take your calls and answer your questions. Big thanks to tonight's guests, Garrett Rutgers and Sheree Wallace, and... On behalf of your legal rights, a big thanks to all of you for listening. And at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden. Be safe, have a good night, and zealously guard your legal rights. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.